0: You're listening to The Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Cthulhu, The Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Tyler Sokash is the Adirondack Mountain Club's Outdoor Skills Coordinator. The day after completing his master's degree at the University of Rochester, Tyler embarked on a 7,000-mile through-hiking immersion into wilderness. He joined the Adirondack Wilderness Advocates as an activist to promote the intangibles of wildness and their benefits to humanity. In 2017, Tyler put his through-hiking skills to the test as he carried over 1,800 petitions 47 miles in 24 hours across the wildest remaining landscape in New York to advocate for wilderness protection. In an effort to meld humor with conservation efforts, Sokash also created and co-hosts Footstuff podcast, which spotlights outdoor adventure, antics, and activism around the country. You can check out all of Tyler's wilderness adventures through his Twitter and Instagram account at Tyler Hikes. And if you want to experience a heaping dose of hope for the future, check out Tyler and Friends podcast, where you'll experience a level of energy and excitement for hiking and wilderness that is quite refreshing. Without further ado, we start today with Tyler giving us some background on what it's like to grow up in the Adirondacks.
1: The Adirondacks, Jack, are believe it or not, most people don't know this. They are the largest. It's the largest protected land area in the Lower 48 states. It's the only park in the world that I'm aware of where non-park employees are allowed to live inside of the park itself. So there are 103 communities in the Adirondack Park. I grew up in Old Forge, New York. My parents still live there. Uh, and you know, growing up in the Adirondacks is a—it's a—it's an—it's a special honor because you've got you know 30,000 miles of brooks, rivers, streams nearly 3,000 lakes, plenty of hiking trails, of course, and a lot of indigenous wildlife that kind of add to the natural charm of what is the Northeast's wildest place. The Adirondack Park, you know, outside of those communities, it does have um, what's called New York State's Forest Preserve, which is our land that's protected both in the Adirondacks and the Catskill Park further down along the Hudson River Valley on its way towards New York City. Uh, it's protected as forever wild. Uh, half, About half of the forest preserve is motorized wild forest. So, you know, anyone could drive their motor vehicle there and explore readily. And then the other, about the other half, just a little bit under half of the forest preserve is uh, wilderness. So you've got motor-free opportunities and the requisite silence, solitude, and remoteness that comes with it about 20% of the Adirondack Park is classified as wilderness.
0: You share something else in common with uh, with John Davis. Uh, you also did a mighty quest. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, growing up in the Adirondacks, I became quite accustomed to camping, hiking, going out on long adventures into the woods. And I remember I was at this impasse in my life when I, thought I was going to need to buy a car. I was living actually in Rochester, New York at the time at the end of college and just starting my master's degree. And I remember we were hit by snowmageddon, uh, Ralph Wilson Stadium or the New Era Field that the Buffalo Bills play in was buried in snow during, during this November snowstorm in 2014. And at the time, even though Rochester didn't get nearly as much snow as Buffalo, I was still walking six miles to my internship. Um, or you know, taking the buses when they were available to get back to school, and it, it wasn't sustainable. So I thought I might need to buy a car, and I was going to buy a 2015 Subaru Crosstrek, a tangerine one, Jack, with a sleek interior <laughs> and a high clearance. But instead, I used those earmarked dollars, and on, on the I was on the cusp of, of buying my first car at 28 years old, and uh, instead, I decided to use that money to go on a 7,000-mile through-hiking journey that absolutely changed my life and now has inspired me to become a, a strong wilderness advocate. So, yeah, I'd love to tell you a real brief synopsis of that 7,000-mile journey because there are other people who might be in school or at the crossroads in their life, whether they're between jobs, on the uh, precipice of retirement, or, or maybe just suddenly finding themselves with a little bit of free time planning a thru-hike is probably the cheapest way to have a long holiday. And I started my thru-hiking journey with the 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail, all the way from the 49th parallel along the U.S.-Canadian border, uh, where the Pasetan Wilderness in Washington abuts against the uh, border with Canada. And I followed that thru-hike, that National Scenic Trail, all 2,650 miles through 48 wilderness areas, seven national parks, multiple national monuments, all the way down to Campo, California on the border with Mexico. And if that didn't quite you know, quench my thirst for wildness, this was just the beginning because I had saved enough money from not purchasing that car to then book a flight and fly to New Zealand. New Zealand uh, has a new thru-hike since 2011, Jack. It's called uh, Te Aroa, Auro- or uh, in from Maori, the indigenous language, it translates to the long pathway. Te Auroa goes 3,007 kilometers from the tip of the North Island at Cape Reinga. It's right where the Tasman Sea and the Pacific Ocean collide. Uh, so it's a very spiritual place for the Maori people, and it traverses the North Island, going through wonderful. Um, pastoral paradises and World Heritage sites like Tongariro National Park, and it it concludes in Wellington, where then you have to take an inter-islander ferry to the Marlborough Sounds and Picton, and the trail picks back up in the Queen Charlotte Track on the top of the South Island and traverses uh, the entire South Island, just on the leeward side of the Southern Alps, and it its terminus, its southern terminus is in bluff on uh, the very bottom of the South Island. And just, just then I had the audacity to continue. I thankfully <laughs> squandered away enough money. I was miserly enough on the trail to continue the journey. I flew back to Atlanta, Georgia and walked home via the Appalachian trail or our heralded national scenic trail on the East coast that goes for 2,189 miles from Springer mountain in Georgia to Katahdin, the tallest peak in Maine.
0: So PCT, and you did it Sobo, and that's cool. Southbound, that's not a common thing. What is a little bit common that I've noticed is how much PCT through hikers who've completed the trail talk about New Zealand next. This is not the first time I've heard someone doing New Zealand immediately or shortly after the PCT. So there must be a lot yeah. of talk on that trail about that new, new New Zealand trail.
1: Well, I think, you know, maybe when you're on a National Scenic Trail, suddenly your life has totally changed you know you are reduced to uh all that matters is that you've got a backpack on your back filled with the sustenance that you need and the water that you need to traverse a landscape to your next resupply point or town and all that matters is having a great time immersing yourself in that environment and you're constantly surrounded by other people who've made the strange decision to uh, shirk life's responsibilities and head out on a trail for multiple months at a time. And while you're surrounded by those other strangers who've who've decided to walk from an arbitrary point A to an arbitrary point B, of course, on, on trail, you encounter different trail families, people from different backgrounds with different beliefs, different ideologies, different ideas. And you hear about other long distance hikes that are out there, and the community is so welcoming. The small towns, the people that you meet along the way, the trail angels, the, the fellow through hikers, you, you develop a new sense of community, and those people share with you some pretty intriguing ideas. And as long as you have the time and you're privileged enough to have the money, um, the thought of, of spending another month, two or three or four on the trail, if you're able, is enticing. (laughs) And so I did hear a bit about Teotaroa while on the Pacific Crest Trail, but I actually um, came up with my year-long through hike uh, back in Rochester, New York, after that snowstorm.
0: And I think it's probably a great way to um, mitigate the the post hike depression that is so renowned for through hikers afterwards, just trying to re enter society <laughs> and, and noise and automatic doors and air conditioning and stuff, it really has a real impact on people, I've heard. Um, I've never taken that long of a hike. So, uh, but those are all three on my list, as is the CDT. Um, that's a 7,000 or so mile quest. The AT yep. must have had some sort of an influence on you. What, what did you know about the Adirondack, this the, like the mountain club and everything at the time that you started the AT? Had you gotten involved at that point yet?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently the outdoor skills coordinator at the Adirondack Mountain Club. It's uh, an organization that's it's almost, we're almost at our centennial. We formed in 1922, and we are dedicated to the uh, preservation, conservation, and responsible recreational use of the New York State Forest Preserve. Growing up in Old Forge in the Adirondacks and then discovering the High Peaks Wilderness Area, I was introduced to the Adirondack Mountain Club by a summit steward um, named Seth Jones, who is now the education director at the Adirondack Mountain Club. And he encouraged me to apply. And I actually worked as a wilderness trip leader, guiding people uh, on their backpacking trip destinations throughout the high peaks wilderness in 2009 and 2010 that was my first introduction to um, being a trip leader and backpacking with groups and it laid the foundation that informed me that I could be successful on a long-term through hike which is quite challenging but absolutely worth the undertaking
0: what were some of the biggest challenges for you
1: Yeah, I can remember a few in Washington state. I remember being on the edge of Mount Rainier's national park and, and uh, I was walking through the William O. Douglas wilderness and I suddenly had an idea. I had an idea that if I could walk through the night, I could get to the center of goat rocks wilderness for sunrise. And I decided to embrace the challenge of wilderness in that moment. I pushed through the night and I I made it, uh, and I could see Mount Rainier further away now to the north-northwest. I could see Mount Adams uh, to the southeast, and I could even see Mount St. Helens uh, looming in the distance in the southwest with its top third Blown to smithereens. Mm. And I felt totally, totally enraptured by wildness. I had so much adrenaline coursing through my veins that I didn't even realize that small, tiny rocks had worked their way into my boots. And when you're in the nascent days of a through hike, Jack, and your feet haven't had enough time to become calloused, you are susceptible to blisters. I developed just the worst blister uh, on my, my foot. And I. I remember, like writhing in pain that night, couldn't really sleep. Two other northbound hikers met me in in the southern edge of the Goat Rocks Wilderness, um, and you know, they they. I remember them saying, "Hey, these thru hikes, they're going to challenge you mentally, physically, emotionally, sometimes all at once." Uh, and I I felt like I was in the crux of my adventure in that very moment, wondering if I would ever make it to Mexico. When suddenly, around the corner. Uh, a very kind through hiker uh, everyone has a goofy trail name. His name happened to be bipolar and bipolar <laughs> actually donated to me his entire med kit with his, uh, Leuco inside. And I put that adhesive Leuco tape, which, um, act as a, it's a, it was a wonderful barrier between my blister and my, my boots and my socks. And I felt so rejuvenated by that act of kindness. I just, it kind of charged me all the way down to the Columbia River Gorge and into Oregon. And it, 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 there were moments like that of physical exhaustion that and when I just wasn't so sure if I would make it, even on the Appalachian Trail, after departing from Grayson Highlands where there are some uh, wild, uh, feral ponies, I was I, hiking northbound uh, after leaving the ponies behind, and I just had the worst uh IT band pole and I it was really it was I was struggling to walk. I wasn't sure if I would make it, but I, I rested at this shelter called the partnership shelter, which is a famous one along the Appalachian Trail. Um you can order pizza at that at that shelter. I just rested for a while and instead of quitting, I, I decided just to rest. You don't want to make an irrational decision so quickly on a big trip like that. I took some time for my body to heal and I was back out on the trail in no time. Um, so there were some moments of, uh, physical exertion that I had to push through, of course, on a, on a trail like that. There are also long stretches where you're, you know, you experience that solitude and it's a welcomed change, but for some that's a challenge. And, you know, I was pretty fortunate in my 7,000 mile journey, um, out West. Now they're having such a big problem with, uh, wildfires. Uh, Luckily I was able to, Uh, As a southbound hiker, I just happened to miss a lot of the the burns that had happened. Maybe they were put out by brave volunteers. Perhaps a storm put them out weeks before and the trail had reopened. Uh, But I was lucky on my through hike to not encounter any sort of wildfires on the way to stop my journey.
0: Now on to the rewilding part of this. What sorts of things have you noticed on, did you notice on any of these trails where it would stick out? that you were in an area that was less protected than others you'd been through yep. where you may have noticed you know real spe- real connectivity issues issues yeah. or opportunities what were some of the things that you noticed uh, along the way being someone who could actually is trained to pick out things like that
1: I'm glad you asked Jack I remember summoning Katahdin and pressing my forehead against that summit sign up there on Baxter Peak and um, thinking just you know how have I changed? And how am I going to articulate the values of wildness to others? And uh, the one thing that I started to do was do a, a bit of digging, do a bit of research about wilderness. I was trying to juxtapose why was my Appalachian Trail experience different from the Pacific Crest Trail? And you know the proof is in, is in the data. You know, on the Pacific Crest Trail, you do go through forty-eight wilderness areas. Um, comparatively, on the Appalachian Trail, you walk through or along twenty-five, and only two national parks on the AT compared to seven that you traverse on the PCT. And then I did a bit more digging. You know, I learned that in in the United States um, there are about four point one two million miles of of roads. Uh, you know, roads are important. They got me to work today, and you know, they get us to the supermarket. And I, I I started to wonder, do roads and do vehicles, do motors have a right to go everywhere? Well, on the Appalachian Trail, on average, you cross a road, Jack, every four miles, which means to me, as someone with their boots on the ground, you can only walk into the woods two miles before you're already coming back out again. So especially in the mid Atlantic, you felt an increasing presence of noise, planes, trains, automobiles, um, roadside highways through Shenandoah National Park, no wilderness areas along the stretch through Pennsylvania. Uh, And you compare that, you know, the road crossing every four miles to the Pacific Crest Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail is 500 miles longer than the Appalachian Trail. It's 2,650 miles long. And along that journey, you only walk through four towns. And yeah. right then and there, it hits you in the face that it's the expansiveness, the vastness of wildness is something that's difficult for the East to replicate. And I began to wonder, are there places where the, those vestiges of wildness still remain in the East, in the Northeast, and how can we go about protecting them? And it was fortuitous when I returned to the Adirondack Park to become an outdoor educator and to work with the Adirondack Mountain Club, a new addition to New York State's Forest Preserve was being um, considered. It actually had been bought by about $14.5 million. The state of New York purchased what's called the Boreas Ponds Tract. And -hmm. it's right on the southern slopes of Mount Marcy, New York State's tallest peak. And the Boreas Ponds Tract encompasses this wonderful network of wetlands, value one wetlands, because they include some endangered species like farewells milfoil it's critical habitat for new york state state fish the brook trout which has seen uh the beleaguered brook, brook trout about nine percent of their historical habitat still remains intact in the east and yet they were here in the boreas ponds track so i i remember i wanted to do whatever i can to help protect boreas ponds as wilderness if not for me even if i don't go there very often, I want to protect it for the black bears, the for the blue heron rookery that's there, for the moose, uh, for the mergansers, for the brook trout that call it home. So the Boreas ponds tract controversy suddenly jumped to the forefront of my mind.
0: I would imagine uh, that you got a little bit involved there. What, what happened after that?
1: Well, The Adirondack Park Agency, which formed way back in 1971 to help classify land based on its capacity to withstand use in the United States' uh, largest park in the lower 48, it had to manage this this public land. And what is this public land going to become once it leaves private hands and goes into public lands? Is it going to be a wilderness area, um, motor-free? Untrammeled? Is it going to be wild forest, which is what a majority of the forest preserve is, where you can drive your car up to a picnic spot or snowmobile through the forest preserve? Uh, is it going to be intensive use, like the ski slopes along Whiteface, where the 1980 Winter Olympic uh, and 1932 Winter Olympic Games held events? Is it going to be a historical area, like John Brown's farm? Well, the APA was trying to grapple with this new purchase and they held eight public hearings across New York State. I went to seven of them, (laughs) and they were all over the state. Uh, They asked for public comment, and it was shocking that no established group had actually decided to take a strong, staunch stance for wilderness, for what was at the time one of New York's last quiet, remote, places more than three miles away from roads and snowmobile trails. So I thought this is an opportunity to help the eastern United States recapture that sensation of wildness that was ubiquitous across the con- this country, you know, 400 years ago, uh, Well, in Boreas Ponds therein laid an opportunity. So a new group formed, the Adirondack Wilderness Advocates, and I was eager to join the Adirondack Wilderness Advocates, to ensure that the torch of preservation um, wouldn't go out at Boreas Ponds. And what did we do? We raised public awareness. We collected letters. And when those first petitions weren't enough, and boy, oh boy, did we collect petitions in the first round, Jack, um, this was a historic moment for the Adirondack Park Agency. Um, they hadn't had so much interest in their in their public debates before. Um, the most public comments ever for a a land unit in the Adirondack Park was received. 11,266 comments were received, and the Adirondack Wilderness Advocates almost solely helped ensure that uh, over a third of those comments were people asking for a full intact wildlife refuge for this uh, potential wilderness area. Uh, And importantly enough, and important to know, other groups did fight for partial wilderness so in total, 84% of the initial public comments were asking for a very strongly protected wilderness area for a majority, uh, if not all, of the Boreas Ponds tract. <laughs> and if you're a politician, when 84% of the public tells you one thing, usually you listen. But that, that first round of petitions wasn't enough. So I decided to put my through hiking skills uh, to the test. I decided to write a new petition. And in a short period of time in November of 2017, I collected 1,882 letters asking for a full wilderness area on behalf of the Adirondack Wilderness Advocates for the Boreas Ponds Tract. Um, And I decided that on one day in November of 2017, I would walk 47 miles and arrive at the Adirondack Park Agency from the Boreas Ponds tract with the very letters that were begging those um, park agency officials to, def- to defend this last remaining uh, vestige of wildness as wilderness. And it was one heck of a walk, Jack.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet. I, I saw. Um... Uh, Dixie is one of my favorite PCT uh, hikers and she took a bunch of different challenges on her hikes and one of them was a 24-hour challenge where you hike the entire 24 hours Um, but she didn't stop at 24 hours she then got it in her head that she wanted to set her own personal record for the most miles hiked without stopping and she went like 60 I think it was 68 miles Exactly. And, uh, and film the whole thing. So you got to watch, You can find it, Dixie, PCT, uh, on YouTube. But that, that you just sent chills because it reminded me of that story. And I'm thinking she wasn't carrying 1,100 letters on her back at the time. She's an, a very ultralight hiker. She would have complained mightily. Um, and the other thing that, that occurred to me as you're talking is there's got to be something that's not in the water. A lot of people say there's something in the water. I think that's what makes everybody else... Um, so hard to get to sign letters and petitions and things everywhere else because uh, 84% and that level of activity, um, it just makes sense why the Adirondacks, the whole complex is so well protected, so big. There yeah. really is something not in the water there. It's a crystal clear water. Maybe people are thinking yeah. crystal clear. Uh,
1: Speaking as, of the water, I mean, the whole point of the walk was to kind of show the people of New York and the people worldwide that... You know, the Adirondack Park is a world-class resource and wildlife refuge. It's also a great place to visit, of course, for humans. But selflessly, it's a place that deserves to exist because it's really important. Those innate powers of uh, that nature exudes just—they—they they, you can't help but feel it at Boreas Ponds, which is that complex is the largest high-elevation wetland complex in the state of New York. You only have one Boreas Ponds tract, and for a state that has over 96% of its land, you know, you're able to drive across. Um, This last 4% that is protected as wilderness, really important that we protect it. Um, The Adirondack Park was founded in 1892 because of its world-class watershed. Uh, The waterways of the Adirondacks are, they're basically, they were not just important for the people, they were important for New York's economy. Um, the viability of the Erie Canal is one of the main reasons why the New York State Forest Preserve was created. So there there are um, financial, spiritual, uh, recreational reasons why we wanted to see this watershed protected as wilderness. And definitely walking through there, you feel its power.
0: What about the walk itself? Did you inspire yourself or others to continue these, uh, as you call them, wilderness walks?
1: Yeah, so... This wilderness walk was to serve a purpose. It was to say that if we allowed the Boreas Ponds Tract to become a weaker, a weakened area and allow motorized recreation all the way to the center of the high peaks, we would really be taking away an opportunity for spiritual rejuvenation, for opportunities that are increasingly rare to find in this country, for silence, solitude, remoteness um and th- those are all from a human perspective just on my walk itself i saw black bear tracks in the november snow perfect stepper traps tracks most likely a, a red fox down by the ponds themselves of course martin and snowshoe hair tracks were everywhere so i was i was just reminded even in you know what was becoming the dead of winter that november it was very cold uh, lots of snow on the ground uh, i i saw signs of wildlife everywhere and that's, that reminded me how important it was to protect that area of wilderness. If I could do that whole walk 47 miles in a day, that experience would be cheapened for future generations of Adirondackers who would hope to find in an increasingly populated and developed world those areas where they could really escape from it all and you know leave the rat race of life behind for a bit and find those vestiges of wildness. So I, I decided to set out to prove that point. The walk was very difficult. It went I bushwhacked the first two miles to avoid roads. And then I went around the Boreas Ponds tract, up and over the shoulder of Mount Marcy, New York State's highest peak, to Lake Tier of the Clouds, which is the highest pond source of the mighty Hudson River, and then down through the valleys and co- reconnecting with the Northville Placid Trail. And Jack, I'll never forget, it was around midnight at the time. I'm walking along um, the shoreline of Hunter Pond just passing some rock precipices when a sheet of ice broke and smashed on the trail in front of me. And it just sent a, um, a rush of adrenaline through my veins. And I was so mad at the uh, First off, I was tired. My back ached. My legs quaked. Uh, I felt angry that other state agencies weren't fighting to protect the inherent wildness of that currently remote place. I felt angry that I only had 1,882 letters in my backpack. I desperately wanted more. And just then, as I'm going up the roaring brook a few miles later, in the snow, I see tracks of megafauna, I see moose tracks. And it's once again, it, it, it brought me back to a point of homeostasis in my mind where I thought, yes, this is why we're doing this. This is why protecting the remaining wild spaces that exist in the Northeast is important. It's because we share this landscape with other species that call this place home. It's not just a gymnasium for these animals, this is their home. And I've, I felt like protecting wildlife connectivity in, on the Southern slopes of the high peaks, in the largest high elevation wetland complex left in New York this was the perfect place to to defend wilderness. And when I emerged from the the woods and did a six mile road walk, I was pleasantly surprised, Jack. I wasn't alone. I was surprised by other Adirondack wilderness advocates, many of them Adirondack Mountain Club employees who met me uh, along Route 86. And then we walked together and carried that backpack. We shared that backpack. And we lifted that torch of preservation, that backpack filled with letters, and put it in front of the podium at the Adirondack Park Agency for their meeting at 8 a.m. the next morning. We made it just under 24 hours as a group. And it was quite a testament and a stand for wildness that perhaps hasn't been seen in the Adirondacks in in quite some time. About half of the Boreas Ponds Tract was protected as wilderness. The other half was designated as a motorized wild forest. The unfortunate outcome, while it seems like a compromise, is that uh, we just lost one of the last places in New York State where you could be five miles away from a road or snowmobile trail. That no longer exists by Boreas Ponds, but at least the ponds themselves and the the, the areas north of the ponds towards Mount Marcy was added to the High Peaks Wilderness. It's just unfortunate that the agency didn't see value in protecting the southern half of that landscape which is just as vital to the uh to the wildlife
0: you've been on quite an adventure so far in life i imagine oh. you have something in front of you that uh speaks of more adventure can you tell us a little bit about your plans going forward from here
1: i just was fortunate enough to be selected as a chulengo visiting artist and activist uh last year january of 2018 something magnificent happened in the country of Chile. Um, With the help of um, Christine McDivitt Tompkins and Tompkins Conservation and the Chilean government, there was a dramatic conservation achievement, of which I know you're aware, Jack, that five new national parks were created, three were expanded, and Chile saw its national park territory expand by over 10 million acres, or over 40% of their current land allotment for national parks there has been a gigantic rewilding effort laid in front of us in Chile. And now Chile is the leader of conservation in the world. Like that is quite the feat. And so, you know, almost a year to the day of uh, the president of Chile and Christine McDavid Tompkins um, striking that deal and signing that into law. uh, Now I've just booked a ticket to go be a part of the Chilango Visiting Artists and activist Program to visit a few of these newly created national parks. The one that I believe I'll spend the most amount of time in is Patagonia National Park in the Aysen region of Chile. It's way south of Santiago, but uh, north of Torres del Paine. And I'm excited to see it. I hope to go into, um, I'm really hoping to go in, into Cerro Castillo National Park too. Uh Tom Butler from Tompkins Conservation. Uh, <laughs> gave me some advice that i should definitely check out that so i want to see that while i'm down there i'll be spending a few weeks exploring these newly protected areas in chile hopefully to then be inspired to protect more land in the northeastern united states and beyond uh, where i live so I'm, I'm excited for this opportunity and a little bit nervous to be honest
0: you're very john davis in a lot of ways and <laughs> i know him better than <laughs> you but i do know that he can't be stopped and he's just got to go, go, go. And the world benefits from people like you. So thank you so much well, for, yeah. for, for doing this. And one final thing is I want I want people to get an idea. I mean, are you genetically superior to any other human being or are you just an average regular person that other people could, could get out of their head ah, he's special. He's different. There's something, I want to do something really big. I want to do something big for concert. I want to get into the movement or something, but I don't know what I can do. And, and he's different than me. Can you assuage people's feelings about that so that you can maybe encourage a couple more, especially young voices to come into the movement and do anything like what you're doing?
1: Well, first off for the Adirondack mountain club, uh, when I guide trips, I'm guiding 70-year-olds up New York State's tallest peaks, and they're not always in the best of shape, although I make sure they're in good health, and we are able to have a safe and successful adventure, and sometimes, sure, we have to adapt our itinerary to best fit the members of the group, but I've taken so many people out who haven't been walking since the 1970s and they are so enthused to get outside again. So even if you are caught up in the rat race of life and you have had kids and you've had responsibilities laid at your feet that have prevented you from getting outside as much as you would like, you can start small. I always tell people there's no way that you could run a marathon without first finishing a 5K. So the first thing you can do if you wanna get back out there and plan a big hike is to just plan something small. With those little successes, will also come small failures, and you can learn from those failures and get the 10 essential gear items in your pack. Learn about leave no trace, hard skills and ethics to recreate responsibly. You could take a map and compass class to reintegrate yourself with the wildness of nature. And slowly but surely, you'll be on a big adventure too. These trails are open for anyone. And the the, the thing I'll say is I just, akin to what John Davis does with his walking, I thought what's a little walk I could do in the Adirondacks to underscore the importance of wildness. And this is something anyone could do. I thought about um actually once on a return trip from Vermont, I saw a bobcat by Lake Champlain. And I was reminded of John Davis's efforts to create a split rock wild way from Lake Champlain to the high peaks and how important wildlife corridors are. I thought what if I walk from Lake Champlain to the high peaks of New York? So I tried and I looked at a map and I thought well there's a lot of private land so Unless I roadwalk, walk, I can't do it. So I put little pieces together. I saw, well, I could go down to Willsboro Bay at the, the state launch and see what it would be like to be a duck there. And then I drove over to Rattlesnake Mountain, about a one and a half mile trail overlooking the Lake Champlain Valley. Gorgeous. Went over to a small Fire Tower Mountain um, on a separate trip and, and hiked a little one and a half mile hike to the top. Great view. And f- piecing together this walk. I was able, in small bits, little bits that almost anyone can do who has basic fitness and is able to get out of their armchair, um, which is a privilege and is a luxury and we shouldn't take it for granted. If you can get out for a little walk, just seeing these little wildlife corridors, even from their edge, gives you a bit of perspective and maybe an appreciation of how important protecting those remaining wild spaces is.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth.
1: You're welcome. No problem at all.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.